welcome to 14th and G. Thank you for joining me. And I am pleased to be joined today once again by our founding partners, Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Castagnetti. Bruce and David, welcome. Good morning, Dean. Good morning, Dean. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. We're going to shift from our policy series today and take a look at the politics of it all with a specific focus on the presidential race and, of course, the impact of the virus crisis on the race. You may be forgiven for not recalling that this is a presidential election year. In six months' time, President Trump will be seeking re-election at the polls, and his challenger will be the Democratic nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden. In this crisis period, I do like to level set on where we were before the COVID pandemic. And, you know, President Trump had his re-election platform pretty well set going into this. Uh, it's the oldest one there is, peace and prosperity. A roaring economy and no new foreign wars uh, set the foundation for the platform he was going to run on. That, of course, has all been upended by the impact of the pandemic on our economy and our politics. Any presidential reelection is still a referendum on the president. So let's break that down. And Bruce and David, I, I see this in three lanes uh, of, of that referendum. Uh, one, the pandemic response, obviously. Two, still the state of the economy. And three, likability, that essential connection of any president uh, or presidential aspirant, uh, that essential connection to the American people. So, Bruce, I'll start with you uh, on pandemic response. Helps or hurts the president? And how does he play it in the campaign? Well, as you know, Dean, every presidential campaign since 1960 has been won or lost on television. Think Kennedy in the Kennedy-Nixon debates. Think Ronald Reagan every time he was on TV. Think Mike Dukakis appearing in the tank. And in that regard, the president's looking to show as a strong wartime leader on television. You see those Rose Garden moments with the flank besuited CEOs and, and uh, government leaders and healthcare leaders behind him. Uh, he may or may not be doing a little too much TV, but he gets – the idea that when you look like the president, people think of you as the president. And so he's trying to tout what he's done. The other half of the pandemic strategy for the administration will be to identify those who deserve more blame and who are responsible. In part, it's going to be like China, which frankly does deserve a lot of uh, a lot of criticism for uh, for delaying and not accurately sharing information about it. He'll also criticize Democratic governors in part uh, for uh, for how they may have managed through, but in part for he'll claim they've shut down too much. So I think that's the Trump administration strategy. I think just to pick up on that, Dana, the, the way I think the vice president's looking at this and his team is let Trump be Trump. The the, the two I think there are probably two themes they would uh, run on, right? The Trump failed again. Open the economy. Don't open the economy. Where do I stand? What do I want to do? Or Trump lied to us again. We have enough tests for everyone, right? I think there's some real issues that the president has to confront, he has to deal with. And in the meantime, the, uh, the vice president will step back and look like he's a wartime leader as well, right? Playing into the foreign policy space is right into Biden's strengths and his ability to lead back, not only in the United States, but to lead worldwide at the same time. I think, you know, he will try to be competent and transitional and kind of lead our country back to prominence again. Well, David, one area he is not likely to lay back on where he may have before is on the economy. We were 
anywhere between three and four percent unemployment. We may be looking at something on the order of 30 percent unemployment in the coming months. Now, whether that snaps back in future quarters, there's going to be a bit of a climb out of this hole. How does does Biden take that issue on the offense against the president or does he just let the numbers speak for themselves? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a great question. And I would even step back, uh, go back one step further, Dean. You know, income inequality has been a big issue for our country over the last 20, 20, 25 years as well, where folks, uh, the, the well-off are doing very well and others have remained very stable. So there's definitely, there was unrest even before the high unemployment numbers that we've hit. It's clearly not only are we potentially talking recession, but some people are potentially talking depression as well. And what does that mean? And how do we turn the economy around? I think the other piece of this is not only will the vice president take on the president in terms of the economy and let it play out, but he'll offer some insight as well, talking about lowering the Medicare eligibility age to 60 or potentially looking at part of the Green New Deal and a new infrastructure bill that he would do. So I think there's a mix here where you allow the president to be the president, you allow Biden to to transition to a new leadership theme, and then you offer some ideas and suggestions to move the country forward again. Bruce, yeah, you know, uh, there, I just wanted, I'm just curious your thoughts because the president has not missed an opportunity to remind us of how good things were before the COVID crisis hit. Is there? I, I thought he was trying to make America great again, Dean. <laughs> uh, Sarcasto, it's keep America great. Oh, got it. Is there, is there any way, Bruce, you think the president can still rely on former good economic times? Uh, if those times are not so good leading into the election as an asset? I very much do, Dean. I definitely think the uh, Trump administration has a response and a plan on the economy. Dean, you pointed out that this is going to be fought. This campaign will be fought in three lanes, pandemic, economy, personality. On pandemic, you probably have to give the advantage to the Biden folks for two reasons. First, the president's net approval on handling the pandemic is at negative 57 But second, it's just hard to imagine any scenario where by November we're all feeling good, where it feels like we've had a total victory, where it's morning in America again vis-a-vis the pandemic. So there'll be negative bad feelings, whether the president is personally blamed or not, people are going to be feeling bad. With the economy, the current head-to-head polling shows Trump up 11, trusted more than Joe Biden to handle the economy. And I think even though uh, the economy won't be red hot like it was a year ago, it's going to be an advantage for the president. First, he'll argue past performance indicates the likelihood of a future strong recovery, and he'll say, who are you going to trust to get the economy roaring again? Me, a businessman who's done it before, or a guy who was a senator for 36 years and a vice president for eight years. Second, Trump is already positioning himself as the guy who wants to reopen, and Biden, arguably taking the bait, is positioning himself as the guy who says, no, we've got to stay closed for longer, listen to the doctors and the medical folks. I think a lot of uh, Americans, even uh, even the less partisan folks, are going to, when all said and done, conclude what Brett Stevens said in the New York Times a week ago was right, that we played by New York rules, which made sense for a city with a dense population, but didn't make sense in so many other places around the country. I think a lot of folks are going to feel like we shut down too much for too long, and that's why the economy is bad. Trump's trying to be their leader. Third, as David mentioned, 
to to bring on board to the to the uh, Biden bandwagon the the progressives such as Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC supporters. Biden is campaigning to the left of Barack Obama. And I think there are going to be a lot of voters who are skeptical that the answer to what ails the economy in November is a Green New Deal, Medicare for all or free college. The, the only thing, though, Dean, if, if I may pick up on that, remember, there is definitely one thing that unifies the Democratic Party right now, and that is their ability and desire to defeat Donald Trump. And that's what moving the Democrats together. So I think even as as the vice president has to bring in the Biden supporters and the Warren supporters, as Bruce mentioned, and I agree with, I, I think there's a lot of leeway for him to do things that he needs to do and remind people that the president is dishonest and incompetent. And again, Trump failed us one more time. I think that's the piece that keeps the party together, though, and the vice president moving forward. Bruce, just turning to that third lane of likability, that essential uh, connection to the American people that, that any successful president has to have. We know what the Trump, the hardcore Trump supporter who follows his Twitter feed, he speaks to them on a level and in a way that's maybe not apparent to the rest of the electorate. Is that connection going to be enough? Is it going to be broad enough to get him back into the White House for another four years. Uh, Trump relying on people who love Trump alone wouldn't be broad enough, but that's not what he needs to do. If you remember in 2016, a majority didn't like Trump and a majority didn't like Hillary Clinton. But among those who disliked both candidates but had to choose, they went for Trump plus 17 in 2016. The biggest concern at the moment for the Trump campaign is the fact that the same voters, those who don't like Trump and don't like Biden, are currently pro-Biden plus 32. That's a 49-point swing among voters who tell the Washington Post they dislike both candidates. But as you know and I know, it's really early. And at points similar to this in the 2016 campaign, or the 20, I should say the 2012 campaign, uh, Mitt Romney was looking pretty good. So what the Obama folks do? They started defining him. Same with the Bush folks against Kerry in 04. And a, uh, whether it was the Swift Boat ads or the total BS allegations that Mitt Romney wages the war on women or would wage a war on women, which is just when you think back on it, really kind of disgraceful uh, in, in defamatory. But that's modern political campaigns. So what the Trump folks are going to do is they're going to define Biden. He's too old. They're going to suggest he's not mentally up to the challenge. They're going to say he's been too pro-China for too, too long, and that's why the Beijing Biden hashtag is something they're pushing. They're going to say he's been a Washington politician for 44 years, which is factually accurate at a time when people are really disgusted with Washington. And they're going to say he's too liberal and he's pushing an agenda that would undermine the recovery in the name of, uh, of woke priorities that are no longer affordable by the nation. I think on that, Dean, though, what I would say is first, I think the vice president has learned that you need to defend yourself. You need to take those weaknesses and make them strengths, the ability that or the notion that he has experience instead of 40 years in the in the U.S. government is an important factor. And again, I think most importantly, it, it, it's the president himself and his inability to lead our country. The, to me, the most interesting thing that's going on in the state of this race right now is the president losing support amongst elderly voters. If, if the president can't win seniors, that really gives Vice President Biden 
an opportunity and a new lane to move into. And I think what the seniors are seeing when you look at the at, at the polling, again, is the fact that this president is incompetent, he's dishonest, and he's not moving the country forward as he promised us. The, the one thing the vice president has to needs a, a, a little hope on is, is polling going to be accurate in 2020 and not the way it was in 2016? And I think that's the big challenge that the vice president's team is working with. So those are the messages that each candidate has to deliver to make that connection, to make their case to the American voter. How about the mechanics of how that message is going to be delivered? Uh, it's very difficult for me to see, even as states start to reopen, it's very difficult to see any scenario in which 20, 30, 40,000 people are crammed into a convention center or a stadium while a presidential candidate waxes poetic to the crowd. So I guess this is a virtual campaign. Bruce, what does that look like and who has the advantage? You well, Dean, you're right. Uh, so much of this campaign has been and likely is going to remain online. I tend to think the non-traditional candidate, which would be Trump, is favored by the non-traditional campaign. First, at the moment, the visual contrasts are the president, you know, in the Rose Garden or otherwise wearing a suit and tie, looking like a president surrounded by people who make him look like a strong wartime commander. He's got the visuals thing down. He's always been good at that. Joe Biden is quite literally stuck in his basement. And when you see Biden events and look, guy does his best, but it's I feel like I'm watching or I'm talking to my dad on Zoom because, you know, my dad's got a bookshelf behind him, too. And I love my dad, by the way. Online fundraising. So. Joe Biden has spent a career doing the more traditional candidate fundraising event, you know, some well-heeled donor in Georgetown or Martha's Vineyard or, or the Hamptons hosts an event and invites other folks around. It's, you know, it's what you've done for the last 40 years in Washington. The game's moved online, and that was Bernie Sanders' strength. That was Elizabeth Warren's strength, but it wasn't the strength of uh, Joe Biden. It's been overwhelmingly Trump's strength. And at the end of March, the campaign cash on hand, if you do Trump and the RNC, versus Biden, the DNC was about five to one, 244 million to 57 million. Look at the followership online. Trump's Twitter games got 79 million followers. Joe Biden, five million followers. Trump has 21 million fo- liking his Facebook page, his campaign Facebook page. Joe Biden's not yet at two million liking his campaign Facebook page. And this is also a campaign where Uh, You really want intensity and enthusiasm among your supporters, people who are really psyched for you. And the polling suggests that the former vice president's got some work to do in that regard, because when the pollsters at ABC asked, are you enthusiastic, very enthusiastic for each candidate? The very enthusiastic for Trump was 53 percent of his supporters. The very enthusiastic for Biden, 25 percent of his. And likewise, when Grinnell College asked the Trump supporters and the Biden supporters presently, you think you can be persuaded not to vote for your person? Only 17 percent of Trump supporters said they could be persuaded not to vote for him. The other 83 percent don't care if he shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue. By contrast, 43 percent, almost half of Biden supporters say, yeah, I could be persuaded not to vote for him. And, you know, we'll see with these recent allegations whether that in any way diminishes the vice president's support among folks uh, among folks who had concerns on Me Too questions. The, the, the way I, I would start off this segment is, as we have written a lot about living in an age of disruption, I would call this era a campaign of disruption. It is, it's coming home to roost your point about are we into virtual 
conventions, virtual, online organizing. Certainly, we've been in the world of virtual fundraising and online fundraising for a long time. Is now hit, you know, the, the nail is being hit on the head at this moment in this space. And I think to pick up on Bruce's point about the vice president being like his dad on Zoom, I think many people in the long run will find that appealing. Right. The one thing that I think the vice president's team is looking at is how does the vice president come across as empathetic on this, much like Bruce's comment about his dad and how he likes his dad. That's also going to play to the vice president's strength. And I think in dealing with the number piece, the question the vice president has to figure out is how do you deal with other organizations in the Democratic Party? kind of like the Occupy folks who have about 10 million Facebook followers and making sure that you're getting your message out on those platforms beyond what the vice president has, right? He needs to come across as a a normal Joe, right? He's Uncle Joe. And moving and delivering that message is going to be bigger than just what the Biden organization has in place right now or will develop but they need to use the entire democratic infrastructure in order to move that message. You know, one thing I might add on that, though, Cass, though, which which is ironic, is for all of his experience and for all of uh, the many good things people who I know and like and trust might say about Joe Biden, I have not found him to be a particularly competent or compelling candidate. He's pretty gaffe prone. And in some ways, the less he can make the campaign about him, the more he can make it entirely a referendum on the president, I think the better Joe Biden's going to do. As I look at the primary and I look at the general so far, Joe Biden struggles if we're talking about Joe Biden and Joe Biden thrives if we're talking about Donald Trump. And the reverse seems to be true for the president as well. Well, Casto, in building on that, uh, you know, 2016 was such an unmitigated disaster from the Democratic perspective. It was an election right up until the end. I think most observers thought Hillary Clinton was going to pull that out. So there have to be lessons learned. And I'm curious from your perspective, what lessons does Joe Biden draw from 2016? And and how are those going to be applied in the 2020 campaign? So I I think in some ways, though, Dean, the, the analogy to me is not exactly the same. And here's here's where I would start. As the as the field coalesced around Joe Biden, Mayor Pete was quick to endorse him. Senator Klobuchar, Senator Harris were very quick to endorse him. So solidifying the middle part of the party. Quick after Sanders clearly was not going to win, Sanders endorsed the vice president. Warren endorsed the vice president. You you saw the party quickly coalesce around the candidate. Mrs. Clinton and Bernie Sanders obviously had some issues that they needed to to deal with right up until the primary. This time, I think the major lesson that I would say the Sanders team learned is that we have to be behind the vice president on day one and help get him elected because Donald Trump is this bad. I also think to Sanders's credit and to Biden's credit, they had a personal relationship that both teams were able to to overcome. So in many ways, 
the unification happened quicker. The Again, the hatred of Donald Trump, the ability to bring people together was the important piece of, of what's happening. And you're seeing people in the House and the Senate quickly endorse the vice president as well. So I think that's one piece of it, right? The other piece is that using and utilizing the democratic infrastructure beyond the candidate's appeal is going to be an important piece, not only in the in fundraising, but clearly in organizing and in messaging, as we talked about before. And I think you're going to see an openness from the liberal part of the Democratic Party to 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 engage in that debate and not be a hindrance to the vice president, but to help him take this president on, much like uh, Bruce described a, a minute ago. Well, any discussion of the mechanics of this campaign, whether virtual or in person, uh, really begs the question of the mechanics of the actual vote. Bruce, how are we going to, uh, particularly if we have another outbreak uh, in the fall, right around election time, how are Americans going to go to the polls? How are we going to vote? And how does that affect the turnout? Dean, I think that's the hardest question of all and the scariest question of all. We know that Americans want to vote. In 2018 midterms, we saw the highest turnout in 104 years. We saw a similarly epic turnout in all battlegrounds in the off-year elections of 2019. Uh, The polling about are you very enthusiastic to vote by CNN was off the charts. So that's point one. Point two, we don't know who will benefit from the higher turnout. The Trump team looks at the non-voters of 2016 and says they're a majority of white didn't-go-to-college voters across the industrial Midwest, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire. And they'll say that benefits us, whereas the Democrats will point out in the Rust Belt states, places such as Texas or Florida or Arizona, there are more uh, voters of color or likely or college-educated white voters, and that suggests that higher turnout could benefit them. But we're in this new extraordinary time when voting could be a risk to your life. And you may have to choose between your right to speak to who leads our nation and your uh, desire to not catch an illness that could kill you. We saw in the Wisconsin primary, because the legislature screwed up its ability to get things right, you had voters literally risking their lives and in some cases catching sickness. One could easily envision if the flu returns and the virus returns in the fall, one could envision states where there are rolling lockouts and the cities, because the population density is higher, have fewer polling places and greater restrictions and the rural areas don't. Now, that would be a really uh, meaningful impact on the potential turnout and the likely partisan impact in this to the advantage of Republicans in the same way that if older voters conclude it's a greater risk to them than younger voters, older voters tend to skew Republican. So there's a lot that lawmakers should be focusing on, and I worry they're seeing it through a partisan lens instead of a public health lens. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Bruce on the public health lens versus the partisan lens. I think the interesting question to me, Dean, as I think about it, is how do state and local governments change their election processes moving forward? And are we going to see more states like Oregon who go to mail-in ballots? And is that going to now become one of the changes post-pandemic era here? I think that's very possible and can probably in many ways not only be a public health issue, but help save some resources as well as we start to get back into a resource debate. 
David, my question is, if you're relying on items outside of the candidate's appeal and that infrastructure, is there any opening here for a third-party candidate, not, of course, to to win or even garner electoral votes, but Ralph Nader in 2000, Jill Stein in 2016. Now you've got Justin Amash, a Michigan congressman running for the Libertarian Party nomination, Jesse Ventura, former Minnesota governor, running for the Green Party nomination. Do you see any ability of those third-party candidates or any others out there to impact around the margins in key states that might might affect this race? I think in, in, in this case, Dean, again, the, the dislike for this president and the, and the lack of trust in this president makes it really hard for someone from the left to run as a third party. I, I just don't it doesn't feel right to me. This president is a great rallying cry for Democrats to stick together. You know, the question is, when Vice President Biden wins, what does 2021 look like? That's where I think uh, the fights really begin. But I, I really don't see it in the, in the, sh- in the next uh, six months. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with David on this one, Dean. I think uh, Justin Amash and other third parties net help the president. I think the reason is the intensity that we talked about before. The president's supporters love the president. Nothing he can say or do, he's already proven, shakes their support for him. And I think the challenge of an Amash and others is you take the so-called never Trump vote, folks who aren't necessarily Democrats, folks who definitely don't side with Bernie or, or Warren or, or AOC and the squad, folks who would be nervous about voting for Joe Biden, wondering how beholden he might be to the liberal left, but who absolutely won't vote for Donald Trump. And right now, if they were given a binary choice, they vote for Joe Biden for, for the reasons David described. But it's no longer a, a binary choice. And I think for a lot of voters, there are going to be an opportunity to not vote for the president. So you scratch that itch, but you also don't endorse a level of uh, a woke agenda that you don't believe in. Uh, we saw Hillary Clinton, I think, much more net harmed by the independent party and by the Green Party. Granted, the margin was so thin, but more harmed than helped by having third parties. And I think for Team Biden, the entrance of third parties is more of a net risk than a uh, than a gain. I, I don't I don't disagree with you on the risk part, Bruce, but I think the the, one of the lessons of 2016 is you don't want to be in that position that, a, a, you know, a Ralph Nader type candidate is running. Uh, the Amash thing, we can kind of debate one way or the other, but I see your point on that one. I just don't see the left kind of jumping in to harm them this time. And partially, it'll also probably depend on who the VP is, too, right? That's another way to potentially solve that problem. Well, no discussion of the horse race is any fun without predictions. I'll ask you I'll ask you for a winner prediction. And what do you think is going to be the most surprising state in this presidential election? Casto, I'll start with you. I, I, I clearly think the winner will be Joe Biden at the end of the day. So that one's easy. I actually would throw two surprising states in, Dean, if I may. I think North Carolina and Arizona are starting to become more and more blue every day. They're clearly purple, but I think they're both trending in the right direction for Democrats. You know, Dean, uh, I have, as you know well, a long history of uh, misunderestimating the president. Thought Marco Rubio was going to win the 2016 nomination, and I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win head to head in the uh, in the presidency. So I'm cautious about uh, underestimating the president. 
I would look at the pandemic, the economic damage that's going to persist, the health risks that are going to persist, and tend to believe that no president survives those things, that, that voters will just want change because they'll be so unhappy in so many ways. But I'm not yet sold that Joe Biden can close the deal and can convert. And I think given 44 years in Washington, there's just going to be a whole lot of information and stories out there. The Republicans will dredge up some of it fair, some of it not fair. That's going to expose the the challenges and, and flaws uh, of Joe Biden and his campaign. Uh, and so as a result, I'm not ready to write it off. You know, again, my uh, my crystal ball is broken and put on the shelf a long time ago. <laughs> well, Casto, you, you cut me to the heart with your North Carolina prediction. Uh, I'm not buying it, but uh, we shall see. Bruce Melman, David Casagnetti, thanks so much for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Thank Dean. You, Dean.